Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I would encourage you to return to return to your seats, but don't sit down. I'd like to invite you all to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. In, in our church, we, we stand when we read the sermon text because we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and out of respect for this word that I'm about to read, we, we stand and listen. So this morning, the sermon text is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by spoken word, or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false." in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So the old philosophical statement goes. I think there's much theological truth in that. We live in a fallen world where Satan is the ruler of the evil world system and sin and sinners abound. There needs no help for evil to take root, to advance in the triumph. We don't need to aid evil. We need to resist evil, to stand up against it, right? The natural progression of things is to move towards evil. Nothing is needed to help it. And the connection of this is equally true. We could say that the only thing necessary for the triumph of theological error and false teaching is for good men to say nothing. The default of the sinful human heart is not to lean into and to be more and more careful and precise and accurate in our theology, but to swerve from it, from him. Paul knew this, and he experienced this as he left the Thessalonian Christians in Thessalonica. And within 
just a, a, a few months, maybe even just a few weeks, he wrote to them two letters, First and Second Thessalonians. And he is hearing that there are is false teaching coming, disturbing them, testing them, tempting them to swerve from the faith that he had taught them. And specifically here in this letter, the focus of the theological errors that they are being, the lies they're being told and they're being tempted to believe is about eschatology. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. Eschatology then is just the, the doctrine of last things, the study of last things or the end times, the final things. All of history, you see, is moving towards a progression where we sang and said earlier today, many times, Jesus is coming. The end is coming. There will be that day of the Lord. The eschatology then is here being questioned, being disturbed. Paul's already been talking about it in chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. He mentions in verse 7 that Jesus will be revealed from heaven when he comes with his mighty angels. In verse 10, he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. So in chapter 2, verse 1, our text for today, we read, Paul says, that now concerning the things we've just been talking about, I've just been read, uh, uh, writing to you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He's saying, your understanding of the eschatology, the eschaton, the final days of these last days, don't be shaken in mind or alarmed. Don't be deceived by these things, he says in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. Paul says that he doesn't want them to be shaken. That word is an interesting word. It has a picture here of foundations of a structure, of a whole building. That the foundations are being shaken because the winds are blowing. It's what Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, 24 through 28, about the wise man who builds his house on the rock or the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The foundation, when the, when the winds come and the rains come and the floods come, what happens? It falls. But not so for the wise man. He says, but here, I don't want you to be shaken. Your foundation's shaken, becoming less and less secure, threatening to crumble and ruin the entire structure. The structure of what? The picture here is a picture of faith. I don't want your faith to be shaken to where it can crumble. I don't want the foundations of your faith to become less secure. It's a picture here of faith in crisis. It's being threatened. It's in danger. Their faith in Jesus is being threatened. But all of this is concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus and being gathered together to him. They, their view of eschatology can shake in their entire faith in Jesus? Yes. Now, that might seem strange because we have said and often should say that it is true that acknowledging a lack of clarity on our part, we should acknowledge and admit that we have a, a lack of confidence about what will be. These are future things. They're complex for sure. That, that just seems right. There's a humility and an intellectual honesty about that, that we don't know it all. And yet, denying or even twisting some things that God has taught us clearly in his word about the last things can undermine our faith in Jesus himself. Such is the danger of the false teaching here. He says here in chapter 2, verse 2, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed because this false teaching is coming by a spirit or spoken word or a letter, even a letter maybe seeming to be from us, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy. Like even if it seemed to be coming from us, 
If it's saying that Jesus has already come, don't believe that. That's a false teaching. But it's not just about the timing of the coming of the Lord, that final day. It's also about the nature and even the truthfulness of Paul's teaching regarding the day of the Lord. If Jesus has already come, as he says in verse 2, saying, uh, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, that hasn't happened yet. But if he has come, then the questions of confusion and doubt and concern will be overwhelming. Imagine the Thessalonians asking things like, did Jesus already come and we, we missed it? Are we not his? Maybe our suffering, persecution, is evidence of God's righteous judgment against us. Like we're not his people. We don't belong in the kingdom. Or is the final day, is it already come? Is it here now, but it's only in part and it's going to grow over the next few weeks or months until the full culmination of it all and the consummation? Like what are we waiting for? Was Jesus' coming, and was our being gathered together to him merely metaphorical? Maybe it was a spiritual coming, and it's already happened, and practically speaking, it's mainly meaningless. Is that what it is? Did we misunderstand what Paul was teaching us? Was he mistaken? Did he lie to us? The questions are many. The confusion is much. The danger for deception and the opportunity for theological error to triumph is great. So Paul says in verse 2, here's his main message, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. But when he says don't be quickly shaken, he doesn't mean, well, you can be slowly shaken and that's okay. Just don't let it happen quickly. That's not his point. He's saying that we've just left you just a little while ago and it seems like you could be easily taken advantage of here. Easily shaken. What was true of them is true of us, church. We also can be easily shaken and alarmed. He says shaken in mind and alarmed. That is becoming less and less sure about your beliefs and more and more confused along the way. Which leads you to being anxious and and concerned. Thus leaving yourself open to be more easily conned by false teachers and their teaching. Progression goes like this. You're disoriented in your mind. You're not sure which way is up theologically about some issue. And that leads you to become discouraged. Both of these lead you open to a savior. Somebody come in, I know the truth. I'll set you free. I'll give you the stuff you need to calm your heart down and give you clarity. And you can be easily deceived. First, if you're unsure in your mind about eschatology, it can lead to an unsettled heart, which both can lead more easily to an unfaithful life in your faith. So Paul wants to protect them. He wants to strengthen them so that they're not easily taken advantage of and deceived and shaken at the core of their faith. So he stands up. He knows that the only thing necessary for theological heir to triumph is for him just to close his mouth and not write them, but he says, I, I can't do that. So he stands. He stands against it. And we as your pastors, we want to stand against it. We want to protect you and to help you to be strong against theological heir and false teaching. So we're going to follow what Paul says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the first part, 1 through 3a, he says what we've already said. Don't be deceived. Don't be shaken thinking that the day of the Lord has already come. Jesus has not yet come. No matter what you hear, no matter what you read, that hasn't happened. But then in the rest of the verses, in 3b through 12, he's reminding them of the proof that he hasn't come yet. I say reminding him because of verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 2, 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
Right? He's already taught them. He's already informed them. Now he's reminding them, but he's reminding them of the proof that Jesus hasn't come yet because in verse 3 he says, let no one deceive you about what? Don't, don't let anyone deceive you that, that thinking that Jesus has already come for, that's the word, for because here's my evidence, here's the proof that Jesus has not come yet and you know it. And he lays it out in what follows. And what is his main argument, the main proof for saying that Jesus hasn't come yet? In verse 3, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. It's really a simple argument. Jesus hasn't come yet. We know that because what has to happen first is the rebellion and the revealing of the man of lawlessness, and neither of these things have happened, and so Jesus hasn't come yet. But he's saying more than that because he wants more for them than that. He's not only concerned with them avoiding theological errors in their eschatology, because if that were the case, then he would simply have said, Jesus hasn't come. We know that because the rebellion hasn't come and the man of lawlessness hasn't been revealed. The end. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us more details about this man of lawlessness, who he is, what he's about, how he works, and what will be the end of him. Why does he do that? If his argument is simple by itself, why does he add these other things? Why does he talk about the identity and the activity and the destiny of the man of lawlessness in addition to the simple argument? It's because Paul wants not only to inform them and comfort them, but to strengthen them. To strengthen them so that they are not easily shaken in the future. He's trying to build their theological muscles so they'll be on guard against false teachers. And all of this he wants to use to stir them up to hope in Jesus more. To hope in Jesus more. They needed their doctrine straightened, realigned, adjusted but they also needed their minds steadied, their faith strengthened, and their hearts stirred to hope in Jesus all the more. Remember, that's Paul's goal in this letter. It's our, it's our tagline for this entire series, that he wants to establish them in the hope of our coming Lord. And that's what we want for you. So with the information that follows about the identity, the activity, and the destiny of the man of lawlessness, may God straighten your doctrine. And maybe it, if it doesn't need straightening, maybe God will just solidify it. But may you also steady your mind and strengthen your faith and stir your heart to hope in Jesus all the more. We will gather this from these verses here where he gives proof that Jesus hasn't come yet and he gives help for growing in this biblical Christ-centered hope. Verse 3, look with me. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the, man of law, uh, sorry, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Simple again. The coming of this man of lawlessness is necessary before the coming of Christ. Before Jesus is revealed, the man of lawlessness must be revealed. Before Jesus comes to gather his people together to himself, the man of lawlessness will arrive on the scene and he will seek to draw them away from him, from Christ, in rebellion. That's that word in verse 3, rebellion. It's the Greek word apostasia. Apostasy. They will be drawn away from Christ, rebelling, turning from Christ, to be gathered to the man of lawlessness by his wicked deception. You see already there's parallels between the man of lawlessness and Jesus. The man of lawlessness has a coming. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one. It's the Greek word parousia. It's the same word, technical term for Jesus, always talking about the second coming of Jesus, his final return at the end of the age. The man of lawlessness will have one. He will mimic Jesus. He will be revealed, verse 3, 6, and 8, but Jesus also will be revealed, verse 7 of chapter 1, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. 
A man of lawlessness will come with signs and wonders, with all power, verse 9. But Jesus, while he walked this earth, he had signs and wonders with all power. The man of lawlessness will claim to be the leader of God's people. We'll talk a little more about that later. But Jesus is the only rightful leader of God's people. We are Christians. We follow Christ. The man of lawlessness is called the Antichrist. Jesus is the Christ. The man of lawlessness opposes and is against all that would be worshipped as God, but Jesus is God, and he alone is worthy of worship. So clearly we already see here a comparison between this man of lawlessness and Jesus, between the Antichrist and Christ. So as we unpack a bit of the identity, the activity, and the destiny of this man of lawlessness, I want to show it to you in relationship to Jesus. Because after all, biblical, faithful eschatology is about Christology. It's about Jesus. We're seeking to hope in him more. So first, the identity of the man of lawlessness. Notice first, there is no name given for him. There is no place of where he will be born or where he will live or where he will operate. There is no time of when he will be revealed. There's no other markers by which he can be identified visibly. None of that. So there's no exhortation. There's no expectation. There's not even a hint that we should be trying to identify him ourselves. Several years ago, somebody sent me an email and said, hey, what do you think of this video? It was about Barack Obama being the Antichrist. It's foolish. Because he says, in verse 6, he will be revealed. Passive tense. God will reveal this man of lawlessness, and all of God's people will know. We don't have to guess. We don't have to try to figure it out. Is it this one? Is it this person? Is it that? I'm not sure. Well, you will be sure, because he will make it plain. So then, why talk about the identity of the man of lawlessness if we can't know any of these things? But Because we can know something of him all the same. We can know something of his character. It's simply that he is lawless. He's the man of lawlessness, verse 3. He's the lawless one in verse 8 and verse 9. That is, he is lawless against God's law. There's a sense in which he will deny and diminish God's law by, I think, primarily distorting God's law. He will seek to create and an interpretation of, of Scripture that will twist things, be deceptive, so that it will be hard to tell at first that he truly is contradicting God. But all will come to him as the one who has the truth. So he says. You see, it says in verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. He doesn't want to do away with the religion. He wants to be the center of it. But beyond the character of the man of lawlessness, we see something of his identity in his spirit. That is his, in his heart, his attitude, his essence. It can be seen and is seen nearly everywhere. It's prevalent in all ages and in every nation of this world. You can look with me in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, where John says of this man of lawlessness, he says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Or chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit, you say the essence of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. You see, there is a final Antichrist, a final man of lawlessness, but there are many, many along the way. We see even something of, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, he is 
effecting his work already now before he is here. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The man of lawlessness, the final one, is not here, but there is a sense in which there are many men of lawlessness. There's a mystery of lawlessness that's already present. It's prevalent. When we went through the Gospel of Mark, and specifically chapter 13 of Mark, talking about the prophecy that Jesus gave, we talked about how there is a complex and multi-layered nature to much of biblical prophecy. That is, that there is usually an, an initial fulfillment of the prophecy, but then there is also a, an ultimate fulfillment of that same prophecy. And throughout that history, sometimes it can be hundreds or even thousands of years between the initial and the ultimate fulfillment, and there are shadows in between, like shadows of that initial fulfillment where you see it kind of re- being repeated in some small way or in many different ways. But all these shadows are also foreshadows of the ultimate fulfillment yet to come of the prophecy. So we look here at verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Who, uh, he, this man of lawlessness opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, who is this and when did this happen or when would this happen? Well, it's very similar to what Jesus says in Mark 13 and in Matthew 24 where he talks about the abomination that causes desolation. But that's not the first time it's mentioned of either. That's from Daniel chapter 11. You can look with me at Daniel 11, verse 31, where he says that forces from him, from this man who causes desolation in God's temple, he abominates it. He, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. He will distort God's law. And they will set up the abomination that makes desolate, clears out the temple. Verse 36, and this ruler, this king, shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Does this not sound familiar? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. When you read Daniel, all of it, especially 8 through 12, you see that the fulfillment, at least the initial fulfillment of this prophecy is men like Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who in 169 BC comes and ransacks the temple and he puts up his image in it to be worshipped, spills the blood of the priests and changes the laws and forbids sacrifices and many other things. But after him you have Caesar Augustus, who profaned the temple, and Caligula, and Nero, and the zealot John of Giscala, and General Titus Vespasian, and Diocletian, and maybe a thousand others throughout history, both before and after Paul wrote Second Thessalonians. Meaning that there was an initial fulfillment, and there will be an ultimate fulfillment, but there are many shadows along the way. There's the spirit of this abomination. There's a spirit of this man of lawlessness that has been coming and is here now, and has been for a long time. But at the very end, when the last man of lawlessness, perhaps the most powerful and the worst one of all, he, when he's revealed... He will enter into the temple of God, it says, take his seat and proclaim himself to be God. But how will he do so? How will he do so? How will he take his seat in the temple of God, Paul says, if there is no temple right now? Well, 
You might want to think, well, then the temple will have to be rebuilt in order for this to happen. But that's not what Paul is saying because Paul uses a particular Greek word here, naas, which never refers to the physical structure of the temple in Jerusalem. Never once. It's always used in a spiritual sense. And so it's, it's not, we should not be expecting that, that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, then this Antichrist will come and set up, literally sit down in it, taking his seat. That taking your seat means to be the ruler, to be in charge, to be the one who leads. Well, then what is this temple if it is not the actual building in Jerusalem? Paul uses this term. Every time he uses it, it's a spiritual sense speaking of the people of God. We read it of it very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. He speaks of the saints who are the members of the household of God. They're built on the foundation of the apostles, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's the people of God. The church is his temple. In him, you, the people, are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Not this building, but his people. We are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there is this sense that the man of lawlessness in the end will come. And what will he do? He will take charge in leading the church of God. So that raises a big question. How is that even possible? How, How is it that the church would allow such a wicked, lawless, deceptive man into the church to be our leader? The answer is twofold. One, not everybody in the church is of the church. And many will follow him who are not following Jesus even now, but claim to. Second, very simply, this man of lawlessness is deceptive. His identity is that he is a deceiver. Verse 3 says that he will lead a rebellion. At the end, there seems to be saying here, there will be a massive apostasy. There are many now who, who maybe deconvert, quote-unquote, or they deconstruct their faith and they walk away from the church and from Jesus. But in the end, there will be a massive exodus, a massive apostasy, a rebellion, because they will be deceived, drawn away. In verse 9 2 Thessalonians 2 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. False signs. I take this to mean not fake signs, like that they're not real, like they're magic tricks, but that they're really wonders. They're really powerful signs, and yet they're to be, lead you to falsehood. They're to lead you to be deceived. Because it says in verse 10, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. This is similar to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. He says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. On verse 21 of Mark 13. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs, like an antichrist, or many antichrists, and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders, like we read in verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 2. They will do this to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Of course, it is not possible because they are on guard, aren't we? Because of verse 23, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. This is Paul's message. There are deceivers, many deceivers, always have been and will be until the coming of Christ. There are many antichrists and men of lawlessness. And the only thing necessary for the triumph of theological error and false teaching is for good men and women and people of God to say nothing. 
So be on guard and don't be quickly shaken or alarmed. But stay faithful to Scripture as foundational. Stay faithful to Jesus as supreme because he is superior to every false teacher. He is superior to the men of lawlessness and every antichrist along the way. The antichrist is the lawless one, but Jesus came and he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The man of lawlessness, this antichrist, is deceptive, but Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus, you see, is morally superior in his identity to the man of lawlessness. And we note this difference, but we note there are other differences. Jesus is superior not only in his identity, but also in his activity over the man of lawlessness. The activity of the man of lawlessness is, first of all, that he is active. He's goal-oriented, he's effective because he's at work and he will accomplish much in his work. Look at verse 7 again, 2 Thessalonians 2. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This word has the idea that it's already working, it's being effective in leading many people astray. He will be effective. How? Isn't he just a man? Indeed. He's not the god of lawlessness, he's not the demon of lawlessness, he is a man. A man of lawlessness, but he is endowed with great power. Supernatural power. Satanic power. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders. He will come with his power to deceive, and it will work. Many, many will be deceived. Because broad is the road, and wide is the gate, and many there are that travel it. And the effects... He will be effective, and the effects of his work will be rebellion first. There will be an apostasy. People will turn from the biblical faith, from seeing Jesus as supreme. And the end will be their condemnation. In verse 10, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. In verse 12, they will be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, he comes to be the leader, but he will lead to hell. The man of lawlessness will come doing the work of Satan, who comes to deceive, to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. And how does he give this life? By giving up his own, by his own death and resurrection. So you see, Jesus is superior, not only in his identity, morally superior to the man of lawlessness, but he is superior in the purposes of his work. The purposes of his activity are greater because the man of lawlessness comes to destroy, Jesus comes to give life abundantly. And lastly, we see the connection between Jesus and the man of lawlessness. Jesus being superior in the destiny of the man of lawlessness. What is his destiny? He is doomed. He is doomed from the beginning. Before he is born, become, before he's revealed or ever comes on the scene and does his wicked, deceptive work, he's already doomed. So we've been saying that there is this man of lawlessness in Jesus. There's the Antichrist and Christ. There are these two great figures. And unless you mistake what I'm saying, there is not some equal opposite thing going on here where it's dualism. This isn't where there's a yin and a yang. There's the dark side of the force and a light side of this balance where there's this cosmic struggle between evil and good. That's not what's happening here. This man of lawlessness and Satan himself is always under the thumb of the Lord Jesus. Always. So we need not fear him. We need not fear him or any antichrist along the way. For every antichrist in the final man of lawlessness is first restrained. Verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. 
In the end of verse 7, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Both the man of lawlessness and the mystery of lawlessness, his work, are now and forevermore will be restrained in some sense, limited. How and by whom? Well, we don't know by whom. It's very likely that it's a, uh, some agent of God, maybe an angel or some other entity, and that one day God will say, that's enough restraining, let him loose, he'll be revealed. And he'll come. And at that time, will God then cease to be sovereign? No. By no means. You see, he's restrained by God's sovereign power through some agent. But even when that agent is removed, he is still under control. Again, verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Do you notice that? That's a passive tense. He may be revealed. He doesn't reveal himself. He doesn't jump on the scene because he takes it over. God reveals him. And it's in his time, the time that God has set, not before and not after. God is sovereign over it all. He's in control. And his destiny is, his fate is doomed. He is the son of destruction, verse 3 says. That is not that he's the son who brings destruction, though that is the case. But here it's the idea that he is the son that ends in destruction. He is born to be destroyed. How is that happening? After the agent of God is moved out of the way, then, verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Don't you love it? It will bring him to nothing. The man who gets in, into the, 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 the people of God and says, I am your leader. See how great I am. I oppose every so-called God and exalt myself above them all. By word or by power or by both, he says, look at me. Look how great I am. And Jesus will bring him to nothing. Render him completely ineffective, null and void. And how will he do this? He will kill him by the breath of his mouth. Jesus, you know, is the agent of creation. He spoke and life came to be. One day he will speak and death will come. By a word, he brings him to nothing. By a simple word, Jesus is superior in power and wisdom and authority over this man of lawless and every antichrist and Satan himself. You see, Jesus wins. That's our eschatology. Jesus wins is a biblical, Christ-centered hope. So we must not be easily shaken. We must not be disoriented in our, our view of the last things and so discouraged about what will be or how it will be and then so leave ourselves open to being deceived by false teaching. We must hold tightly to the Word of God, being faithful to the Bible as our sure, our only sure and necessary foundation. And we must not be impressed with power and charisma and gifts and signs and wonders. We ought to be impressed with Scripture. Because one day all of these things will be brought to nothing, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And we must not lean on our emotions or those things that would excite us or entertain us or intrigue us or be sensational to us. That these things rise and fall with the ebb and flow of a given day or the fads of our culture. We must... Stand on the foundation of God's word. He says in 2.15 of Colossians, or 2 Thessalonians, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter, the apostolic teaching and preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our hope. It's our biblical Christ-centered hope. 
So we must be aware and on guard against the many antichrists who will seek to come and infiltrate our church. Yes, this church, Piney Ridge Church. And they will seek to draw us away from the Lord Jesus. We must stand. We must stand against the rising tide of theological error and false teachings or else they will triumph. So we must evaluate, therefore, every sentence of every book and every article we read and every song we sing and every message we hear, evaluate it according to this book. God, what do you say? I want to be faithful to your word and faithful to Jesus as supreme. And when we do so, we need not be afraid of any antichrist or the man of lawlessness himself or of Satan. We don't need to be afraid of any chained or defeated foe. Because Jesus Christ is superior to them all. He is supreme over all. Though this world with devils filled with should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Because one little word shall fell him. With the breath of his mouth, beloved, our eschatology is never, never about simply times and dates and events or intriguing characters like the man of lawlessness. Our eschatology is about Christology. It's about Christ. It's about being faithful to Scripture as foundational and faithful to Jesus as supreme so that we will be straightened in doctrine, that will be steadied in mind, that will be stirred, strengthened our faith and stirred in our hearts to hope in Jesus more. But through all of this, may he establish us. May he establish us in this biblical, Christ-centered hope of our coming Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know, God, sometimes it seems like today, what we have going on this afternoon or next week or our vacations this summer or anything else that we need to get done seems to be our focus. But would you lift our eyes? God, lift our hearts to you, to hope in your coming, to long for you to return. And along the way, may we never tremble at any deception, at any false teaching. May we not be easily shaken or disoriented. God, would you strengthen us by giving, helping us to give ourselves to your word, your sure and steadfast word. Make us sure and steadfast in faith. And in that hope, help us to live in love, in light of all of your coming and all of your promises. Help us to live for your glory. Help us to marvel at you now because we know that when you come, that's all we will do. In your name, with hope in you, we pray. Amen.